Hey, listen, uh, I'm glad you're here. And uh, when I was younger, I used to, uh, to prepare sermons. I used to think about, what is it that I know about that I can talk about with authority? And therefore, I did a lot of quoting other people when I was younger. I still quote a lot of other people. But today, I want to talk about something I think I know a little bit about. <coughs> and, uh, and I hope that it's helpful to you. And, uh, and I, I, it's kind of a weird deal I'll tell you about in a minute. But, so first of all, I need to tell you that later this month, my wife and I will be celebrating our 38th wedding anniversary. <laughs> Interesting thing. I knew you would applaud. I'm assuming it's mostly for her, and I get it. Um, and, uh, and, but here's what's interesting. I don't know why you applauded, but I want to point out something to you, because we live in a, a world that has a narrative, many narratives, but there's narratives that we buy into that aren't true. And uh, so here's what I'd like to do. If you have been married to the same person for 38 years or more, I want you to stand right now. Thank you. You can, you can sit down. I wanted them to stand for this reason. I want younger families, because we have so many kids, we have tons of young families. I want younger couples to know that being married for a lifetime is not only not impossible, it is expected. You should expect that. As a Christian, you should expect that. So today I want to talk about how to be in love for the rest of your life. Right? Here, so here's the problem. The narrative we're told is that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. It's a lie. It's not true. It was never true. Somebody made that statistic up based on all the boomers who back in the 60s were dropping acid and getting divorced. They just assumed that all these boomers, that it would get worse as the decades went on, and they projected someday 50% of all marriages would end in divorce. It's just not true. It doesn't happen. It's never been true. It never reached that number. And the reality is that, that since the boomers kind of got too old to worry about it so much, the, rate, the boomers are the ones who messed it up. You know, baby boomers? Us. We messed it up. We, we are the ones who messed up the, um, the statistics and marriage and a whole bunch of other stuff. We own it, okay? But here's what's interesting. Since then, divorce rates have actually gone down and are continuing to go down. Interesting. It's not great. There's still too many divorces. I get it. And if you're divorced, I'm not picking on you. I'm not beating you up. And if you're single, just listen. You're going to learn some stuff too. But here's what I, I realize is that there's still too many divorces and too many people think that, well, it's just going to happen or whatever. No, there are reasons divorce happen. There are ways to prevent it. And I want to talk about today that today. Now, the divorce rates are going down. Part of that's because uh, the millennials don't get married till they're 43. But still, So I'm just going to be warning up front. I'm going to try to offend every group today, okay? So if I don't get to you, you should be offended. That was kind of funny, actually. Okay, so here we go. I realized, so if I was thinking about marriage, and we've been married a long time, we have a good marriage, and I realized she does 90% of the work, and, and, you know, and that's hard to put up with me. I get all that. But I was thinking, well, what is it that has made that work? What, how would you say to a young couple? Because, by the way, just a couple things you need to know. Statistically, not Christian statistics, as if there were such a thing. Statistically, having a strong religious faith is the best thing you can do for your marriage. Statistically. It is the one thing that improves your chance of staying married uh, for a lifetime. It is the one thing, right? Okay? By the way, I'm interesting, one, one of the things that's most harmful is smoking. You just can't stand the smell of each other. I don't know. I don't know what it's. That's group number one. I tried to offend. I I don't know what the explanation, but that was one of the statistics I read recently. I was thinking about how do you build a, a love to last a lifetime, and I realized that for me it was about learning how to love, 
And the place that I have learned how to love most, and, and we'll talk about this a little more in a minute, is in my relationship with Christ. As I grow in my relationship with Christ, I am a better husband, and we have a better marriage. And so today I want to take a passage that's about growing your relationship with Christ, and I want to relate it to marriage and other relationships. I don't know if it's going to work in your brain. It worked in mine, okay? So here we go. Let's start in, in John chapter 15, very familiar passage, uh, starting in verse 1. I'll read the first eight because I just want to get the, the kind of the whole picture on this deal, all right? I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value, nothing of kingdom value. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a powerful statement there. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." couple of words you see there a lot. One is fruit, and the other one is a remain. Here is the picture. The picture is that God is the vine. So growing grapes is a big deal in the Middle East, still is. He is the vine. We are the branches. Very familiar, right? And things to be reminded of very quickly is uh, the vine is permanent. The branches may or may not be, <laughs> right? Because if they're not effective, they get cut off thrown away. And he's saying, as long as you stay connected to the vine, you have the hope of a great life, great marriage, whatever it is. Because that is where the nutrients, the power source for your growth uh, comes from. If you disconnect from the vine, you die. Okay? And the picture that we also need to remember is the vine and the branches don't exist for their own benefit. The fruit that it's talking about is not, the vine doesn't eat the fruit. The branches don't eat the fruit. The fruit is for others. It's actually for the gardener, which is a reference to our Heavenly Father, okay? And the impact of others. So here's what's interesting about human beings. We are stupid. We are dumb. We, do, we know things and we just don't do them, Right? We all know that deep dish pizza every day is not good for you. And yet, I bear witness to the fact that it's delicious. So we know things. We don't do them. This, Jesus' teaching is a very simple thing. If you can trust Christ and his death on the cross to forgive all of your sins and to take you to heaven forever, why can't you trust him today with what you need today? Why can't we stay connected with him in a way today that changes the way we relate to each other, that changes the way we look at the world, that changes our understanding of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do? Why do we forget that? Okay, good, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. Now I've got to figure this life out. Duh, right? I, and it's not, I look in the mirror and just go, why, why, why didn't you connect with God about this situation? Why are you trying to figure this thing out on your own? Why are you trying to do this? And so in this passage, this word remain, and the King James is abide, remain, it means to be connected. It means to be connected. Here's what it says in the next verse. I'm going to go through these next few verses, one verse at a time, and I'm going to kind of share with you some, some thoughts that triggered for me about relationships uh, as we learn in our relationship with God how to love. Uh, so in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain, here's that word, remain in my love. The word remain, or in the King James, abide, same original word, 
it appears 11 times in 11 verses. That's a lot, right? If you were to say 11 sentences in a row and you used one word 11 times in those 11 sentences, somebody would go, why are they using that word so much? Using that word so much because it's the key issue. Remain. Remain means to be connected. Remain. Be connected. It's not a dutiful thing. It is a so my wife and I, we go on date night. Why do we do that? So we can stay connected, right? That's why long-distance relationships rarely work, although my wife has suggested it on many occasions. I'm not giving in. <laughs> they rarely work because it's hard to connect as a couple. That's why even with little kids at home, you got to have date night. you got to connect. When I was raising our kids, and our kids were little, and as you can imagine, one of them was quite a handful. <laughs> and... And when that one, I won't say which one it is, but when he, <laughs> when he was being a brat, which was pretty regularly, I knew oftentimes, I knew what the issue was. Yes, there'd be discipline, we had to address whatever, but I knew that he and I had not connected enough. I hadn't spent time. I would literally go back to my office and I'd write in my schedule, three days next week, we're going to spend more than an hour together connecting because his behavior was a reflection of lack of connection. I like that. I should write that song or something. We know this idea of not connecting, and yet in a relationship with God, we think if I believe the right things, I have the right, right set of rules in mind or theology in mind, then I'm good to go. But that's not what faith is about. Faith is about connecting, and it's about connecting every single day. So the, the critical issue in our life is not what kind of job you have, how much money you make, uh, even if you're married, if you got kids. Here is the critical issue in our life. Have you connected with God through Jesus Christ? And are you remaining, abiding in that sustaining love connection with Christ? I've studied some other religions. There may be one, I can't think of it right off the top of my head, that talks about loving God. There's all kinds of versions of their God out there. Most of it is pleasing God, manipulating God, fearing God, fooling God, getting brownie points with God. But we are called to love God. It is not duty-bound. It is not trying to work our way to heaven. It is about a loving relationship. So last week, Cody talked about put God first. Good advice. How do you do that? You fall in love with him. You fall in love with Jesus. And if you fall in love with Jesus, it's not hard to put God first. You don't have to go, well, what Jesus do? You go, oh, yeah, in this loving relationship, I know how to please the one that I love, right? You don't marry somebody and go, okay, now, now i got to figure out today how to stay married. No, just be in love with them and treat them as a loving person treats them, Right? Other things get in the way. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the first question, the critical question for all of us is, is are we remaining, abiding, being sustained in a loving relationship with God? Here's what Os Oswald Chambers says. We are as close to God as we want to be. We're as close to God as we want to be. He's, he hasn't gone anywhere. It's up to us to remain and be available to him. If we're going to live this life, this best life, so I was thinking about marriage, okay? And so I, I over the years, I've, I've counseled couples, not successfully usually, but I'm just not a good counselor. I kind of like to just tell them the truth. and That's not what they want to hear most of the time. But I was thinking about this. If you're struggling in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a co-worker, I, here's, here's your assignment. I don't want you to go fix it. I don't want you to even think about how to fix it. I don't want you to even worry about how to fix it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you for one month, one month to be connected to God through Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is daily quiet time. I want you to spend at least a half hour a day in prayer, in Bible reading, and reflection 
on your relationship with God. And here's what I want it to look like. I want it's just simple daily quiet time. This is simple stuff. This is not really intense. This this is just simple stuff. And yet it sustains us, remaining connected, abiding. So I want you every day to talk about here's how I start my prayers. You know this already. I've told you this many times. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You know what percentage of the time I want to rejoice and be glad in the day that early in the morning? Zero. Okay? But by the time I've said that statement, I've restated what I'm gonna do today. I'm gonna rejoice and be glad. And then I begin to find reasons to rejoice and be glad because there's a God who loves me and cares for me and is for me. That's a reason to rejoice and be glad. I, he got me up this morning. I'm breathing. That's a reason to rejoice and be glad. And then there is a God who is perfect and he's all-knowing and he still loves me. There are reasons to rejoice and be glad. And so I enumerate not only who God is, but all the incredible things he's done for me, the incredible salvation he's given me when I didn't deserve it, how he rescued me from a really bad trajectory in my life and he turned me in a different direction. I am so grateful for that every day. And he's given me a wife I don't deserve and kids I don't deserve, especially one of them I really don't deserve. Well, I probably do deserve that one now that I think about it. But, and I begin with that. And because my, here's my instinct. You know this. My instinct is I want to first thing, okay, God, I'm going to back up the dump truck, beep, 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 beep. And I am going to dump on you all the stuff I'm upset about. That's, my, that's what I want. That's how I want to pray, right? But by the time I've acknowledged who God is and I've chosen to rejoice and be glad and I've been thankful and then I tell the truth about me, Lord, you know, yesterday I really blew it because I was angry and I said that thing to the person, I'm sorry, and I got to go apologize. And then I tell the truth about me. And by the time I've done all that, I get down to the dump truck, it's kind of empty. There might be a couple of things, but it's kind of empty. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to do that. I want you to, I want you to spend time with God every day. I want you to fix them. I don't want you to worry about them. I want you to talk to God. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done for you. Acknowledge the truth about you. And then you can pray about the situation. But here's what I don't want you to do. I want you to pray for them. I don't want you to pray. God, just fix that man. I don't know why I married him. If you would just fix him. No, 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 no. Here's what I want you to pray. God, cleaning me, created me a clean heart. God, change me. God, change me. The situation will change if God changes you. And so for one month, get connected. Get in the flow with God and see what happens. It's a money back guarantee. I'll give you money back for today. If assuming you gave something. <laughs> I, I will tell you, if you'll do that for a month and you connect with God, it will release God's power. I see this God thing. It's not a theory. It's not a, it's not a, a, a system of belief. It is an interactive relationship with God Almighty who then can release his power in us and to the circumstances of people around us. But first, I need to be connected. First question is always, now, what's wrong? my first instinct is to tell you what's wrong with him. That woman, I am telling you, but that's wrong. The first instinct is, am I remaining? Am I abiding in the vine? Am I connected in that love relationship with God? If that's on track, then this other stuff is going to get taken care of eventually. But if that's not on track, I'm just spinning my wheels everywhere else. I'm just blaming other people and, you know, getting people to agree with me how wrong they are. It's not going to get me anywhere, right? So the first question, we're just only in the first verse out of a whole bunch here, 17 more of them. Anyway, as the Father has loved me, so I love you now. Remain in my love. Remain. Are you remaining in God's love? Here's the next verse, verse 10. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. If you keep my commands, we remain in love. What is that? What, here, let me paraphrase it for you. Sin separates. What is, the Bible says the wages of sin, by the way, if, you, if you're not buying into the word sin, just put in the word selfishness, that that feels better for you, right? It, 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 selfishness is just sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
Whenever I sin, am selfish toward those that I love, I bring a little bit of death to that relationship. I damage, I injure, I wound that relationship. What he's saying is if we're obedient to God, if we choose to eliminate sin and selfishness with God's help, we have a much better chance of having a good marriage, a good family, good relationship. Sin separates. Have you sinned against your spouse? Let me just tell you real quick one here. In that daily quiet time, in that little third section I talked about where I tell God the truth about me and how I've been behaving, God's not surprised. He already knew it. He just needs to know that I knew it and I recognize it was wrong and I don't want to do that again. Let me tell you what that does for you. That teaches you about love. What does it teach you? It teaches you to keep short accounts. When I have to day after day say to God, I, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. I spoke a word out of anger that I shouldn't have spoken. And I acknowledge it. You know what is great about doing that is that I get a fresh start. I don't have to carry that around with me. Every 24 hours, I get a fresh start. Every 24 hours, I say, God, I confess that. Now, please help me not be that person that does that anymore. Otherwise, I have to carry it around with me. I have to rationalize it. I have to justify it. Well, you know, they deserved it. Come on. We get to put it at his feet. We get to pick ourselves up with his help and move on and keep on becoming like Christ. What does that do in my family relationship? Bible talks about don't let the sun go down in your anger. What does that do? When I sin against someone that I love, so I don't sin against, yeah, sure you do. You act selfishly toward them. I sin against my wife when I have harsh words, when I, when I, when I expect things that doesn't happen and, and I get mad, I sin. Let me tell you what it does at home. When you learn to keep short accounts of God, you learn the value and the power of keeping short accounts. It's called repentance of repenting to those you love. Son, what daddy said was wrong. He was angry and he shouldn't have said it. And I am so sorry I said that to you. Can we start over again? Can we hug and go forward? Otherwise, dad goes around and says, well, you're, you deserve it because, come on. Do we want to go forward in this relationship or not? The part of going forward in relationship, part of going forward in love, and part of what we learn in our love relationship with God is how to repent. And if you don't think, what is the old thing? Love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a false narrative. Love means never having to say sorry. I say I'm sorry all the time because I screw up all the time. And I mean it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. What a great thing I've learned in my relationship with God to do that. Sin separates, but there is a way through repentance to be reconciled to God and to reconcile those that I love. It goes on and says this in verse, I think we're on verse 11. Um, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Why is Jesus telling this? Because he wants life to be hard and he wants us to be, keep the rules and it's not supposed to be fun. No, he said joy. joy. I don't know how you think of Jesus. When you think of Jesus, if you came from a Catholic background, maybe you see him on the, on the crucifixion, you know, or, or maybe if you come from some other background, you see him in some other way. But a joyful Jesus isn't usually our first thought necessarily. And yet, that's the point of all this stuff, so that we can have joy. We can have a relationship with God, and we can have joy. When I was a kid, I was a teenager, Christian music was starting to change. It's kind of going from the organ and choir thing. It's a little more contemporary, not quite like these crazy guys, but, but you know. I remember an album that came out, one of the first contemporary Christian albums, and there was an MC introducing, and honestly, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Andre Crouch or somebody else. I don't know who it was. But I remember the introduction. I don't remember the album. I remember the introduction. The introduction was this. He said, and it's in Jesus' joy that I present to you. And then he said the name of whoever it was. I can't remember. It's in Jesus' joy. Jesus' joy. That's not what most people think when they think of Jesus. Jesus' joy. 
You see, the truth is, life is best lived as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because he makes things available to us, you can't get any other way. Because cancer is going to come to some folks. Heartbreak is going to come to some folks. But here is what I get in my love relationship with God. A love that will never end. And even if cancer were to take my life, or some terrible accident were to take my life, I can have joy because I know what happens after that. After that, I get to be with him, the one that I love forever, in a loving relationship with him and all the other people that love him. What an amazing thing. So here's my question. Are you living in Jesus' joy? Can people see Jesus' joy in you? My wife has this phrase when I'm in a bad mood. Well, you're just a joy to be around, aren't you? That's her little thing like straighten up. Do people see his joy? Even if you're in a tough relationship, a bad relationship, it doesn't mean you, don't, you can't have joy. Your joy doesn't come from your circumstances. It comes from your Savior and this connection, this loving connection that we have on a daily basis with our Father, with, with the vine through Jesus Christ. So I've told you this so you may have joy, powerful joy. And then in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So let's do a little, let's do a little imagination thing here for a moment. Where did you learn love? If I ask you today, where where'd you learn to drive? You could remember. And somebody else who was there with you can remember as well. They, they break into a cold sweat when they think about it. Where did you learn to drive? You'd be able to point to it. But when I ask you, where did you learn to love? You're probably going to go to more than one person. It would probably be family of origins. Unfortunately for some of you, that wasn't a very positive experience. But even in the best of family of origins, I had a great loving family. But here's the question. Was it a perfect kind of love? Did they love perfectly, unconditionally? It may have been really good, but was it perfect? Was there any room at all for improvement? Whether we come from a dysfunctional family of origins, which all are to some degree. And by the way, if you're sitting with them, poker face right now, don't even smile. For Pete's sake, don't say amen, okay? But how do we learn to love? See, I don't think we know how to love. I made a statement last service. I don't, I don't know if it's true. I haven't figured it out yet, but sometimes you have to say it before you can think about it. That's just politicians, I know. But anyway, if the love that you give to others doesn't come from God, it's possible that it's just selfishness in disguise. It may be a love because because I can get something for you, because you make me feel a certain way, because there's something in it for me. But what Jesus teaches us is to love. Period. Not if, not when, not because. To love. He says, love as I have loved you. I am the model. I am the teacher. I will teach you how to love. So I spent time in the morning connecting with God, talking to Jesus. I admit the truth about me. And through his word, I understand that he loves me. He accepts me. He's not going to leave me where I am. He's not going to let me keep messing up. He's going to help me move forward. But he loves me. Love, acceptance, and forgiveness. What a powerful thing. So later in the day, somebody does something that upsets me, and I want to tell them about it. I want to share with them how I'm feeling in that moment about it in a very, very negative way. And yet I've just been forgiven for so much. How do I then turn around? and hold that against somebody, some minor offense. In that moment, when I want to I let them know 
how indignant I am. I remember I have been loved and accepted and forgiven by God. What is it you want to say to them again? What offense do you want to carry around with you? What is it, Doyle, that you think is such a big deal that you're going to break that relationship over? This little thing down here because your little ego got bruised? No, no, you have been loved. Love as you have been loved. Forgive as you have been forgiven. It's when we forget how much we've been forgiven that we, we stop forgiving. It's when we forget how much we've been loved that we stop loving. In my daily relationship, I am reminded that I am loved. Remember, we forget. Remember, we do that stupid stuff I talk about. We forget. That's why we have to meet with God every day. Because since yesterday, I might have forgotten how much I'm loved, how much I'm forgiven, and what that means for the way I live my life. That's why that connecting, staying connected, abiding is such a powerful thing. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. We always think about that. We think about soldiers jumping on a grenade, which obviously is heroic and incredible. But I sometimes wonder if it's not harder to lay down one's life every day than one time. You say, what do you mean? See, the point of love is self-denial. The only way you can be in love and stay in love for a lifetime is learn to deny yourself. You can have a self-life in which I think that the goal of life is to get what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Or I can have a Christ life, which is to give and to live the life He intended for me. I can either draw my own picture of my life, which isn't going to be very good, or I can accept His picture of what my life should be, which is always greater and better, more colorful, more powerful than anything I can come up with myself. And how do I get this one and not this one? Staying connected with Christ and learning self-denial. Not self-mutilation, it's something else. Self-denial. So what does that look like? It means serving. It means we both get in bed, one of the lights is still on. Now we both know who should be turning it off, but sometimes she forgets. (laughs) Self-denial is, I don't have to have my way. And if you don't learn self-denial, you never have a good relationship. I don't have to have my way all the time. As a matter of fact, that's not even important anymore. What is important is loving and giving and caring. So here, here's what's always interesting to me. Whenever I say this, I know the immediate response. Well, what if I get taken advantage of? So let me ease your mind. You will get taken advantage of. You just will. But if Christ is at work in my life and Christ is at work in their life and I keep continuing to create an environment where they can grow and they can love and I'm giving, God will take care of that. See, at the end of the day, God will take care of that. I don't have to get mine because it's not mine. My life is God's and whatever he chooses to give me is great. And if they respond in a great way, great. If they don't respond yet, I'm going to wait them out. I'm going to love it out. I'm going to keep going. That was just for you. Here is um, verse 14. You're my friends if you do what I command. I don't serve God because I'm afraid of him. I, there, is a, there is a healthy fear. God is powerful. But I don't serve Jesus because I'm afraid of him. I don't serve him because I'm trying to earn brownie points. I serve him because what he has done for me. I am grateful. I love what he's done for me, and I love him for it. And what I do to try to live according to what I believe he wants me to is because I love him. I want to please the one who has done so much for me. That's the difference between religion and relationship. That's the difference between trying to live according to a set of rules and having a loving relationship with a God who you love. Here's what it says in um, verse 15. 
I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. The word that comes to mind is partnership. God doesn't just want to make us slaves or automatons where he just tells us what to do. We have to do it mindlessly. He has partnered with us. If you were to think about um, your life, there are some partnerships in your life. There, there has to be. You were made for partnership. You were made as a relational being. First partnership is with God through Jesus Christ. He wants to partner with you to develop you and to make an impact in your world. And if you're married, you need to partner with your spouse. You need to be building something together. You need to be building a great marriage. It's not just going to happen. You'd be building a great family. It's not just going to happen. You need to be building an impact together in the world. Remember that word fruit that we read earlier? It appears a lot in that because you're not just with God or with each other for your own pleasure. It is to be fruitful, to impact others. So there's this picture Connie and I have used for years. I've used it. I don't know if she's used it. It is a picture of when we get old and gray and wrinkly, and, and she's not there yet. Um, and, and we're in uh, an old pickup truck, and it's got a bench seat, and you can see through the window, and the picture is us driving away, and my head is here driving, and her head is here sitting next to me, and you know inside we're holding hands, and that's the picture of old age for us, that we made it there together. But let me tell you the real picture. That's the picture we talk about. Let me tell you the real picture that we both know. Real picture is starting when we first met. We both know what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to do something for God that mattered, as all of us are, and we decided we would do it together. And so we decided that we would build a good marriage together, that we would build a good family together, and that we would do something that would tell other people about Jesus' love together for the rest of our lives. That is the picture. That is it. We are partners together and with God. We're in this together and we're building something, something that matters. He invited us to be partners and to build something that matters. Verse 16, I love what he does here because this is modeling love for us. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's a powerful thing to be chosen. You ever hear someone say to a little kid, you're my daughter, but if you hadn't been my daughter, I would wish you were because you're the kind of, you're the kind of little girl I've always wanted. Do you know how powerful it is for someone to tell you that you were chosen? What a powerful thing. This is what Jesus is doing for us. I chose you. I love you. I chose you. You've been married for a long time. Try this one on your spouse. Honey, if we weren't married and I met you, I would choose you. Still, I would choose you. He goes on and he says this. I did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and, here's that thing again, bear fruit, fruit that will last. Not flash in the pan stuff, not fancy stuff, not world fame, wealth stuff, kind of stuff that lasts forever, like relational stuff, investment in other people's stuff. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Tell them you would still choose them. Remember that there's something more to your relationship, your marriage, than just pleasure, that you were supposed to be bearing fruit, something that impacted the world. And, and yes, pray. Pray for your spouse. Not the fix them prayer. The bless them prayer. Pray for them. Pray, pray for your kids. Pray for your marriage. So just a word of advice for anybody who's just on the brink with your marriage. There's not a, there's not a marriage that God doesn't want to bless. And here's what's so funny about your mind and mine. The minute I said that, you try to find the exceptions. Well, what about if he beats her? So do you think God wouldn't want to transform that person? I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences. I'm not even saying the marriage would survive. But do you don't think Jesus wants to transform that person who is so far away and so mixed up and so messed up? He does. 
If you really want to do something about your marriage, start with prayer about yourself and then that God would work in both of your lives. That's where it starts. That's what really matters. He says right here that we can pray and he'll answer them. Um, And then in verse 17, this is my command, love each other. So interesting that he just ends with love. He begins with remain in me and he ends with love. It's a command. It means it's a choice. It means that love isn't something that happens to you. You fall into it. You fall out of it. Love is a choice. One of my favorite stories, I didn't tell this in the other services, but there's an Indian couple, a Christian couple from India that attended um, my first church I went to after college. And I met them, and they were, I think, singularly the most loving family I'd ever met. And I was so shocked to find, their kids were in my youth group, I was so shocked to find that they had had an arranged marriage. There was no concept of falling out of love because they'd never fallen in love. They had chosen to love each other. Let me tell you something even more amazing. Their eldest son, who is a medical doctor, asked his parents to arrange a marriage for him to a Christian girl. Now, that just sounds horrible to me. And I asked him, why would you do this? He said, because I saw the power of choosing to love each other. And I want a spouse who's going to choose to love me, not because of what I can do for them, not because how I look or what I do for a job. He also got married. Great marriage. He's saying that is just culturally weird. I get it. But the point of this is choose to love. You can choose to love, but first you have to choose to learn how to love. And in order to choose to learn how to love, you've got to choose to love Jesus and to let him love you back. I got that reversed, didn't I? Choose to let him love you, and then you love them back. And if you want to do that, you can be a loving person. Your marriage can be great. Your family can be great. Your life can be great. But you got to choose it. I believe as we choose Jesus, there are all kinds of wonderful implications. My prayer is that you choose Jesus, and you learn to love. We learn to love each other and him and those nearest to us. Let's pray. Lord God, I love you. I thank you for loving me. It has changed my life. What you did on the cross was incredibly powerful, but what you do in my life every day is also powerful. You teach me the power of love, the power of forgiveness, the power of repentance, the power of having you walk with me as you teach me how to love my wife, my kids, those around me. And I ask you to teach me more because I have so much more to learn. Lord, I pray for anybody who's struggling in their marriage today that they would quit trying to figure this thing out, quit trying to manipulate it, quit trying to justify their position and just lay themselves before the cross and be loved. And Lord, as they are loved, teach them how to love. Anybody whose kids are sideways with them right now, Lord, I pray that love would permeate that situation. Not any old kind of love, but you are supernatural, unconditional love because love is the solution. And we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.